Hey folks, welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price and I'm your host. I'll get to today's participant in a moment, but let me get through some of the laundry list of uh, details I got to hit first. First of all, if you're listening to The Sacred Speaks on audio, thank you. It's now on YouTube. Go over to YouTube, type in The Sacred Speaks, and of course, subscribe and like the page and any episodes that are on there. It helps. I'm trying to build the video component of the podcast. Thank you. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can also jump over to audio and check it out at any of the podcast affiliates, including Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, and the like. Thanks for being here. Um, appreciate it if you would like it and, uh, and share it when you can. Uh, second thing is the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Check it out at thecenterforhas.com. It's a boutique integrative clinic that my wife and I started a long time ago, and we're growing and expanding, and that's exciting as well. Uh, we have a YouTube uh, panel discussion called Get Centered. While you're on YouTube, type in Get Centered for the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. And of course, check that out. It's all the clinicians from the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. So thank you for doing that. Uh, the music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And of course, what I didn't say is check the Sacred Speaks out. The website's up and available at thesacredspeaks.com. Uh, the last thing is a class I have coming up starting April 27th at the Young Center. Look it up at younghouston, J-U-N-G, houston.org. And look below, and you'll find a link to the class. Uh, the class is called How to Die Before You Die, and I'm totally ripping off my friend Brian Marescu, who j recently wrote the Immortality Key, and obviously if you've paying attention to the podcast, you know how influential that work has been to me, not only in uh, theory and, and approach, but also in reference page. I have been digging and mining Brian's reference page in my participant list. So thanks, Brian. Again, check the class out. Brian is going to come to participate in the third class. I forget which date that is, but look it up and, uh, and you'll see. We're going to begin talking about Eleusis and certainly aspects of psychedelic history of religion, um, and then using Brian's book, Immortality Key, as a reference, and he'll come and answer questions on the third class, so be looking forward to that. Uh, what else? Today's participant is someone I've been trying to talk to for a long time. She's an early experiencer of both psychosis and the depths of psychedelics, and now she's training to be both a psychologist and Jungian analyst. And immediately when I, when I met her, I was excited to, uh, to explore the idea of talking in podcast format, and it paid off, thankfully. Mackenzie Amara, check her out at mackenzieamara.com, and I'm going to make sure that that is all correct. Yeah, M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E-A-M-A-R-A.com. Uh, she's known as the Inked Shrink. She's got a lot of cool stuff on here on her website. Check it out. Again, links are below. And I'll let uh, the podcast do the introduction, so we'll just get started. But other than that, check the class out. Check all the pages out, Instagram, Facebook, and the like, and, uh, and share it. But please, I think one of the coolest things that's happening right now is the YouTube page is growing, and a lot's going to be happening on that page over the next three to six months. A lot of growth happening in the Sacred Speaks. For now, thanks for being here, and we'll leave it there. Mackenzie Amara, I'm excited. We have uh, kind of been tracking each other for a long time, but it's exciting to get together with you and have a, a collegial conversation about what's going on in the world of depth psychology and religion and psychedelics and the like. 
I want to start with your bio, and then we'll just dive right in. So by trade, McKenzie is a writer, coach, and five rhythms teacher. By vocation, she's a Jungian analyst in training and a clinical psychological doctoral student. By design, she's a collection of fractal holographic cells dancing around some strange attractor for the sake of who knows what to live in an insignificant mythic life reflected of the mysterious vital spark within her. She identifies as a series of memories and unverifiable subjective experiences of selfhood to which she is rather fondly attached. She has a penchant for scholarship, the occult, pedantic erudition, morbid humor, grandiosity, nihilism, and semi-responsible hedonism. Born in the shadow of New Age culture into a fractured family system and the subjective experiencer of arguably extreme early childhood trauma, her life's work is to heal psychic wounds, hers and others. That she and others become strong enough to contend with the unconscious quicksands and transpersonal abysses which lap at the periphery of developing consciousness. She's an emergent property of being playful at becoming sovereign. She really, really loves butter. Amen to butter, Mackenzie. <laughs> I was talking to some friends the other week and they were like, no, but how much do you love butter? And I was like, five sticks a week much. <laughs> that's a, like, actually, that's, that's an obscene amount of butter. Obscene amount of butter. <laughs> I put butter in my, like I make it into ghee a lot. So yep. it's like butter in ghee form, but I put it in my coffee. I cook with it and then I drizzle it on top of everything that I cook with. Like <laughs> it's literally a food group. <laughs> uh, you sent a video my way that I watched where you were uh, lecturing about the underworld and depth psychology and psychedelics. And as I said earlier, when we were just kind of catching up before we started recording, um, this, this podcast is located in between um, some exploration of the classics of the kind of origin of Western uh, mythic shamanism, essentially, and, um, and, and so a religion, and also the clinical application of psychedelics and the psychedelic renaissance that we're currently in. So I, I, I want to set us up there, but I want to venture back in time, of course, in your life and offer you the opportunity to talk about what sets you up to be so interested and, and desiring to head into the abysses of, uh, of your life. <laughs> Large question, go wherever you like. Um, uh, like many people, I think, that find their way to psychedelics um, or to psychological healing or any healing, I was very much initiated by trauma. Um, I, I did not have an easy go of it as a kid. I, I was not... Um, yeah, I was born into a lot of darkness. There was, there was a long lineage of, um, addiction and abuse and, uh, really suboptimal, um, behavior. And, um, and I thought that was all perfectly normal as I think most children do. Uh, and it wasn't until, um, I started, well, I got really interested in spirituality and um, consciousness as a teenager, started reading a lot into enlightenment and mysticism, uh, started working with an Advaita teacher, Gangaji, mm. um, and was really curious about this question of truth 
and true nature. And then I started taking psychedelics and it started well and good. Lots of love, lots of fun, lots of giggles. And by the time I was 18, I couldn't, I, I didn't have, I didn't have awareness that, that what I'd lived through already was as traumatic as it was. So I didn't know that I was taking psychedelics with a very fractured psyche. Yeah. Um, and of course the psychedelics just magnified that. So I found myself at 18 um, experiencing a pretty extreme psychotic break as a result of LSD. Um, and um, that scared the shit out of me. And because I was stubborn as fuck, I thought there was something wrong with me that I wasn't doing it right. So I kept doing more because um, I needed to best this thing. I, I needed to prove, you know, I was very much in my ego inflation. Mm -hmm. um, and that exacerbated the issue. It was gas on the fire for sure. Um, and I started having symptoms of schizophrenia, even when sober, um, which, yeah, again, just was really scary. And, and it was very hard for me with the kind of spiritual foundation that I had. It was very hard for me not to feel like I had failed, um, that, that there was a point and I was not getting it, um, so I kind of kept going, <laughs> uh, was like, like, and I was, uh, yeah, kind of contending with this part of my biography recently in the past, I've sort of related to this as like a time of really extreme darkness, but I think actually, uh, more what was going on is it was kind of a wrestling with the angels. Like it was a very Jake, Jacob wrestling with his angel kind of story. Like, yes, there was this huge pit of um, pain and trauma that I was running from as fast as I could, but it was the light that hurt so bad. It was the, tr the light of truth that hurt so bad. I couldn't, um, I couldn't be in it skillfully. I, um, yeah, it just, it just, it kept ripping me apart. And I, and I kept, because of this undealt with undigested, um, pain that I was carrying trauma that I was carrying, it just became this sort of Sisyphusian task of, of, um, trying to digest embody, understand something about true nature of reality. But be, I think because I was approaching it as a means of escaping myself, it never worked. It always just hurt. Um, so I was really into psychedelics because I could tell that they held this promise for me. But every time that I would enter this space, it would um, 
it would expose all of the ways in which I felt just woefully unprepared to deal with the nature of reality. <laughs> um, so it caused me to split. I mean, it, it caused the split that was already there. It caused this fissure to just become very exposed. And it was in that period of time that I was introduced to Jung and I was introduced to five rhythms and both of these things um, saved me in a big, big, big way. Five rhythms um, as an embodiment practice to um, not just remember one's body. And I mean, remember in like the very real way of like, you're, you're getting your members back <laughs> together. Um, but to come into that and then realize that um, everything inside my body was everything that I was really running from. It was these, it was these deep feelings of anguish and anger and longing and, um, this extreme kind of sexual pain or just like the, the equation of sex and pain and torture and like this, this really dark aspect of embodiment. And it, it like all of this stuff was coming up and coming through as I was getting, as I was reassociating, as I was remembering my body. Um, and something about the container, about the temenos of five rhythms as a practice and showing up for this as a discipline allowed for that stuff to come out in a safe way. And it really taught me how to move with emotion um, and how to be with emotion, which was crucial, obviously. Um, so that was sort of the beginning of what's been a 15 year long healing journey. Um, and, and reading Jung and that, my kind of initial spark with Jung was um, reading Man and His Symbols and Memories, Dreams, Reflection at, you know, 20 or whatever. And, and, and having this kind of like, oh, that's why nothing that I've gone through has made sense. I've been trying to make sense of it. This is nonsense and I need to be approaching this as nonsense. This is like, complete intuitive sorcery and I'm trying to apply my highly skilled rational rational intellect to it no that's not how you solve metaphysical equations <laughs> like not at all so I was really inspired by really by dreams and and symbolism to begin with but then I got into um studying rites of passage. And that became an incredible doorway for me into my own healing. Just realizing that there is an archetype of initiation that since time immemorial, young people have been initiated into their spiritual traditions by their elders and that these initiations always included an ordeal. And the ordeal was followed by a period of liminality wherein the rules do not apply. You are betwixt and between um, what you were and who you will be. And, and there's a lawlessness to it. And having this framework, I was like, Oh, I've gone through an ordeal. I'm in the liminal now. Shit doesn't make sense here. This is an initiation. And so that gave me this sort of meta framework of like, this is a process that I am inside of. 
okay, I can be inside this process and trust that it's going somewhere. And that led me to um, discover Stanislav Grof and the idea of the spiritual emergency. And that was, that was sort of the final, like, okay, now, now all of this nonsense feels whole. Um, that, that there is a process of spiritual emergence, which is necessarily traumatic because you're dying to one version of reality and being born into another. And I mean, Otto Rank was the first person to um, talk about birth trauma, but it's a very intuitive concept that to leave the womb via a lot of labor pains and contractions and chaos is traumatic. And of course, that's also what's happening with one's personality when you're being kind of reworked into a spiritually perceptive or mystically attuned person. There's a lot of shedding that needs to happen. Um, so all of those things coalesced and I was like, okay, this is a process. I'm in it. Cool. Um, and that helped ground me. And that was a, that was a multi-year process of, um, yeah, wrestling and, and studying and seeking out the elders via books and spiritual teachers that could serve to initiate me, um, that could serve as the sort of um, teleological pull for me. Um, yeah. It's always necromancy, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> Bringing back the dead, mining from the dead. Well, you've said so much. So, Why <laughs> oh. I have her here? That's a pretty friend. Yes. Yeah. We've lost touch with that. It freaks us out. Mm. We, we, I, when, I think Jeff Kripal said to me at one point, he's like, you know, the there is an, a telepathic magic to reading a book that somebody's transmitting information from another time and space, but we don't view it with magic. We're, we are literalists. Oh, this is, these are just words printed on paper. And we forget the imagination in the process. You know, and that actually, like, sometimes I'll be assigned texts that I just find horrendously boring and tedious to read, and it's remembering that piece yeah. that always snaps me back into presence with it, of like, this is a conversation with somebody that's not in the room, imagine yourself with them and i'm always mm. just like ah okay i'm not asleep anymore here what i am an attitude that's a good reminder it helps so much <laughs> well i've, I've uh, i want to revisit some of what you've already said and start to mine through this material uh, as as therapists or in in the therapeutic container the idea of psychosis is something that we encounter with a lot more frequency than many people do. And we, we, because psychosis is such a scary, uh, you know, the idea that we can be taken over and lose ourselves is terrifying to most of us. We're not conscious of it. Uh, we, we forget how many behaviors we do, our routines, for example, 
you know, when we brush our teeth and how we walk to work and where we sit in a chair and all that stuff. Those routines kind of give us the illusion that the fra- the fabric of our existence is more certain than it really is. But I- I'm curious if you just kind of talk about what psychosis is like from from firsthand experience and how you've moved through that. I've been really, um, yeah, I've kind of dedicated a lot of my reading and research in these last few weeks to the idea of divine madness. And it's given me um, actually a distinction between, and, and the divine madness comes up in psychedelic conversations, perhaps for obvious reasons, for, um, but, but I, there's a distinction between pathological psychosis and divine madness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that this is actually really important because what, what happened to me was, um, the rigidity of my identity in complete rebellion to the chaos of reality. And it was the tension between those and my inability to really contend with, with my own truth, my own story, um, that, that, caused this fissure and that fissure was experienced subjectively by me as psychosis and and you know symptoms were were to varying and lesser degrees there were auditory hallucinations most days um i had a lot of body dysmorphia sometimes i would shrink down to be very very small while i was in conversation to somebody i'd feel like i was looking up at a 10-foot giant um Mm-hmm. Uh, like daytime, nighttime, just time in general had like very strange proportions um, and, and meaning was very undiscernible. There's, there's something in, and I think that this is probably true of the psychotic and the sort of divine madness frenzied state of ecstasy um, the water level has risen and everything that could be, everything needs to be interpreted because ev- at, when the water level's rising, of course, like you put anything in water and it's, it's technically touching each other, even though there's lots of water, but like there's connections being made between this. There's, if this moves over here, it, it does affect the other objects that are in this water mm-hmm. level it's all touching and that and that, that's of course happening in the atmosphere too but but it's not as as present and there's something in the psychotic state of like something would move over here or i'd overhear a bit of a conversation or a car a blue car would drive by or a cat would walk by and and it was all so fucking connected like nothing meant nothing everything was potent um which of course means that I wasn't there at all. And that's of course, another thing that, that you read about is the, the loss of subjective self. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, you, you need an interpreter for all of this meaningful stuff. There needs to be something doing the filtering and interpreting and discerning and saying, all right, yeah, blue car, whatever cat, interesting. 
or whatever it may be. And that just wasn't there. So everything was flooding me, inundating me with information. And I would lose the thread naturally because there were 8 million of them um, at all times. And at a certain point um, in, in, a, in psychedelic experiences, even years later, when, I would, when this flip would sort of switch, switch would flip, and I would um, kind of be back in this state, I learned to just pull myself back. I, like, I, my psyche, my consciousness learned to just like, okay, like you're being flooded. Um, down is up and up is down and in is out and out is in. Just, mm-hmm. just hang back. So I'd, I'd, I'd go into this retreated space which I think probably people on the outside were like, whoa, where, who turned out the lights? You know, like that, there's probably a sense of like, and she's gone. But, but it was this self-protective, like, I know if I can at least hold my little acorn as close as possible, um, then, then, then I won't get pulled in 8 million different directions and fractured again. Uh, but in the early days, I didn't have that awareness. I didn't. I didn't have the acorn even to to really grab onto. It was just like, and I am all of this now. Um, and why I differentiate that experience from sort of the divine madness or the ecstatic madness um, is. Because, yeah, now having a bit more familiarity with that space, the ecstatic space, um, there's, a, there's a surrender and a truthfulness and a connectedness in that space that I did not feel at 18, screaming bloody murder, mm-hmm. running through the streets of New York. Like, there, there was no, and it was, the, it was precisely the lack of surrender in me, the lack of ability to contend with how deeply connected everything is that caused this subjective experience of like extreme dissociation and suffering. How were you approached by those around you? At that point? Yeah. Oof. Um, There was a lot of scared animals in the room with me. Mm -hmm. They were just, yeah, I mean, we were all scared animals, but that's my that's my biggest memory is just looking around and being like wow everybody is terrified of me right now um and i was terrified of me and we were all just really scared nobody knew what was happening uh and i remember i remember crying about it a lot and asking for a lot of reassurance um like am i okay is this okay and people were just like I don't know. Uh, Yeah, nobody knew what to do. We were all kids. Um, uh, A lot of a lot of closer friends did try and help. And as happens a lot on psychedelics, when you're in, you you can loop. So the help, the help would come and it would be momentarily effective. And then I'd loop, um, Mm -hmm. back into, back into the, the dark place. And 
I think at a certain point, everybody was just a bit exasperated. Like, okay, if you need to, you need to hang out in hell, be my guest. But like, we're just going to leave you to it. Did Um, you go inpatient? I should have, but no, I was, I was, um, picked up by the cops at one point and my friend who I'd taken LSD with somehow convinced them to let him take us back to the dorms instead of arresting me. I have no idea how that magic happened, but I am forever grateful. (laughs) Um, Because I think the inside of a jail cell would have sent me off for forever. But but no, you know, like hippie parents um, really like, that's an understatement. Um, so, you know, I, I dropped out of, I dropped out of college freshman year because, because of all this madness and, and their solution was silent meditation retreats and, and green juice cleanses. Like that, that was treatment in, in my family. And? (laughs) I'm very healthy. Uh, (laughs) I have great poop. The silent meditation retreats, I think that that was the wrong direction, honestly, like forcing me to sit with this shit. That's a lot. Um, I was going to say, yeah. that's, that's enough. I mean, most people don't meditate because of that reason. They fucking yeah. freak out. They're <laughs> like, I can't sit with myself for five minutes. So you take somebody who's fucking running down the street. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a misinformed solution mm-hmm. for sure. For sure. And that's. Probably, I mean, obviously, why I feel so strongly about the use of psychedelics in New Age communities. I think that the the New Age culture does not do anybody any favors as far as contending with the darker side of reality. And if you're going to be doing psychedelics, you're going to have to contend with that. And if you're in a culture that doesn't allow you to, that bypasses it or minimizes it um we're just we're just in extreme danger of of really fracturing ourselves and that's the concern isn't it it's we seem to be in a a, a happiness movement that corresponding with the kind of you the the call to seek out some euphoric experience by way of psychedelics which is a total mistake like i was i was talking to bill richards about this the last by the time this comes out, last two interviews. And I said, what do you think about people getting high on psychedelics? And he was like, well, they're a shitty way to get high. And (laughs) I said, well, I don't know. People are are taking some and they're dancing at concerts and stuff. And that seems to be a euphoria that he said, yeah, but they're not taking much. You know, you get into, when you really get into the clinical application, these are larger doses than people tend to take when they're using things recreationally. So they're not having these kinds of underworld experiences which we'll get into in a bit but that that is not it's not like what brian murarescu talks about how to die before you die it's more like how to experience bliss and you know tingly sensations it's totally glitter and it's so fun i know i don't want to like take away from it you know but yeah it's like that's fun and um you know you nobody like I, of course, didn't realize that I was already waiting in the depths of of despair when I started fucking with psychedelics and I was taking recreational doses. I wasn't taking heroic doses and we were having in fun set and setting and these were people that I trusted and and adored and 
Um, but I didn't, I didn't realize that my water level was already so freaking high and I didn't have any of the resources that I needed to contend with that, that of course, just the smallest little bit. And it was like, and there's the whole thing. <laughs> like, and that's the danger is, is, um, you know, you, you, you think that you're going in for a party and some giggles with your friends. And then like the, the beast of your childhood trauma, like runs up behind you and it's like, Nope, <laughs> I'm going to eat you alive. If you try to do that. Yeah. 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 And that, that is, well, this is watching a walking a fine line here because the risk of psychosis is very small when people start taking these substances with the caveat that if there is trauma that hasn't been tended to, it is going to erupt, likely, it's likely to erupt. And without an appropriate container, that has no way of being held. Totally. But, but you did. You had green juice and meditation retreats, and now you're studying well, that's to... the hilarious thing is, like, Vipassana retreats, they, there's a lengthy intake form for exactly this reason. Right. So, because they know if you sit still for 10 hours a day in complete silence with no stimulation, whatever's inside of you is going to come up. Um, and my, yeah, my first Vipassana retreat, I got so deathly ill. I had a 106 degree fever Whoa. by day five. My body was just like, nope, we're not doing this. You're out. Like, <laughs> get free, like flee, um, which... Now I understand why. <laughs> Were you 18 years old doing a Vipassana retreat? 19. 19. Holy shit. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> that's really young. Yeah. I, yeah. I do. I know a lot of people who've gone to these Vipassana, like the, you know, initiation seven-day retreat, and there are people dropping like flies all over the place. I can't yeah. imagine. I've done two since then in the last, in the last, whatever it's been, decade and a half, and just love it. Like, like yeah. what a way to cleanse the doors. Oh my God. I, I come out of that just giggling at like the smallest breeze. It's just like so pure, like <laughs> so pure. Um, and I really attribute having faced a lot of my shit think like with ayahuasca with, with deep help, deep support mm -hmm. in very good containers in the later part of my twenties. Um, you weren't and, scared uh, to start that process again? Using I was more scared not to. Uh, it was, it was, I could, I had the sense. So two things happened in my mid twenties. Um, yeah, like I stopped using psychedelics in my early twenties because of all of this. Started dancing, reading young, devoted myself to, to school and academics. And I was still very obsessed with this question of truth realization. Like I, I wasn't ready to, to, to put down the bone. Um, so I was, I was still chewing on it and I was seeking teachers and seeking answers. And I found a teacher, Jed McKenna, who um, th over the course of three years just completely annihilated me um, in in the same way that, that my kind of course of psychedelic psychosis or whatever had tried to, but because that was kind of too much too fast, 
it didn't work. You know, you, you, I was thrown too far in, so I needed to retreat just as far out. But something about Jed's method, I mean, it was completely destructive, but because it was happening, A, sober, um, and B, over, yeah, over the course of this, like, this great length of time where I was, I felt very much a choice. Um, and it was a non-dual experience that I'd had with him or because of him, if I can say that, um, that made me realize that I was ready to start working with psychedelics again. And I, and it felt like I was on this, I was at this place of these things can either control my life out of fear where I never touch them again and just say that was a failed experiment and I'm, I'm now too scared to go back there or I can take everything that I've learned from my spiritual practices um, and try again as a different person because I did feel different with five rhythms and my advice to practice. It was like, I'm coming to this space as a, as a, I have a different template now. Like um, this isn't just casual fun exploration of consciousness. Like I have my, my vessel was prepared. I, I mm -hmm. could step in um, and I knew that I could contain a lot more of, yeah, my own darkness at that point. So yes, I was scared and it was also absolutely essential. What do you say to people that uh, criticize psychedelics in this way? Like, um, ah, bullshit, you're just trying to get high. Is that what you would do? <laughs> I'm not saying that's me, but what no, I... No, I know. That's what I would say to that person. Like, uh -huh. is that, is that, is that, is that how you would treat this? Do, do you, do you just eat food because you're hungry or do you eat food because there's, there's a whole bunch of other benefits to it? Are you interested in the nutrition? Mm -hmm. Are you interested in the history and the culture and the flavors and the process of making it? Like nothing is just one thing. And if you think that psychedelics are just getting high, you're not using your brain very well. Like, <laughs> I would criticize the fuck out of them. <laughs> I'd be a snarky cut. That's what I'd do. <laughs> uh, okay, so thank you. Um, you you mentioned wounded healer earlier. And th through the, I can't recall through the podcast, I don't think I I've had an opportunity to dive into that with anybody. And so if you, if you could start talking about the wounded healer and uh, then, then I kind of want to get into this, this, um, uh, what you said about rational and irrational thought and the kind of origin and classical thinking of what rational thought really is and where we went wrong with it. How can we kind of pull those two things together? So tug on whatever thread you like. Well, um, the wounded healer archetype. Um, I mean, I'll start by saying that the, the archetype of the psychologist um, has its origins in, in shamanism, that the first healers of soul, which is psyche, um, 
were the shaman and shaman were, it, it was never a chosen career path. It was a path of, it was a path that they were forced into. The shaman were marked. They were either marked from birth with some sort of birth defect or extrasensory perception um, or weirdness that like meant that they couldn't fully participate in childhood or they had a death, a near death experience, accident or illness um, at some point in their life. And what distinguishes regular wounded people from shaman is that the shaman heal themselves. They actually manage to, from that space of complete degradation, dismemberment, um, inability to cope, whatever, however it manifests, they, they say whatever prayers they need to say. They go through whatever process of humility they need to go through. They wreck whatever relationships they need to wreck in order to get the information and the experience that they need to heal themselves. Um, and it's in that kind of initiation through trauma that the wounded healer, when they've, when they've managed to become healed enough that they can now participate again in society, um, that they're not staying in that liminal place, which I think is where a lot of addicts stay. That's where a lot of um, vets end up really sadly uh, is, is this liminal place of no real purposelessness or yeah, uh, a purposelessness, no engagement in family life, no engagement in society, no engagement mm -hmm. in their spiritual life. It's, it's, it's an untouchable place, this betwixt and between place. And the shaman is the one that, or the wounded healer rather, is the one that can move through that space and come back bearing gifts. Um, and why I say that the psychologist back in the day is the shaman is because the shamans, of course, became the priests and priestesses. Like they became it, the shamans turned into the spiritual. And that was the, when there was this bifurcation between matter and spirit. So this, the priests and priestesses now became the carers for the soul and the physicians now became the carers for physical maladies. But originally it was the same thing and perhaps will be again at some point, um, mm -hmm. ideally. And so that bifurcation happened, but even in the physicians, like in the history of physicians, one of, one of the original healing artists in the Greek pantheon was um, Chiron, who the wounded was, who we get the, the trope of the wounded healer from. Chiron was a centaur and he was the, creme de la creme of the physician's arts. He knew everything about healing. Um, all of the herbs and all of the bandages and all of the bones and all of the nervous system and all of the muscles and, and how much time and when to do and what to do. And, and that he learned all of that because of tending and dressing his own wounds. He taught those things to Asclepios. Um, Asclepios is another Greek dude, actual dude, mortal man, um, not centaur. Um, and <laughs> during the daytime. <laughs> yes. Um, and so Asclepios then became the sort of um, 
primordial physician, this archetypal physician. And he, he had an apotheosis through whatever a series of Greek mythological events and became immortal. And in, in so becoming, he, uh, it's said that he now could heal through dreams. So this, this is kind of where we get a little bit of the trope or how, how the, maybe the original thread of dream time and healing dreams, which we obviously use a ton in, in psychoanalysis. Um, but it was this idea that Asclepius was coming to visit you with a healing dream and anybody that needed some healing now that Asclepius was no longer born or um, bound by flesh and blood, he could actually travel through the underworld, through the nighttime irrational world and offer healing in that way. And I've gotten really curious about this recently because, um, I mean, as an analyst, people I discuss dreams with people a lot and and I've been kind of needing to break down a little bit of my own rational Western mind around it of like, um, there needs to be like, uh, there's going to be like a moment. There's going to be a dream. There's going to be a thing, a, a one thing that like, now the healing is done. <laughs> but of course, any doctor knows that you can just, you put the stitches in and then time does the rest. And I think that healing from a perspective of the underworld or he healing the psyche is the same Thing. You can offer the dream and the interpretation of the dream. You can be with the symbols of the underworld as they have been revealed to you. And then just time, just like those are the stitches. These symbols arise to stitch up whatever fracture there was that's causing such pain. Um, and then you just got to trust that it's happening, just like you would trust after you set a bone. Uh, it just happens as long as you have all of the right things in place. Psychedelics are, are an amazing example of this. Uh, I think kind of went on a bunch of little tangents there. Why is that that psychedelics provide that? Because I think that they reveal in with the right set and setting, they reveal the pieces of our story, our truth, our consciousness that we need that act as the sort of stitches that act as the, as the salve, you know, Jung, Jung's got this idea that we don't, most of our problems we, don't, we never solve. We just grow larger than them. And and I like the kind of the, the idea of the physical body in this, that if you get a cut on your skin, you don't solve the cut, you grow. Like your skin grows. And I, and, and I think psychedelics, um, they open the wound, they, 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 they expose the cut, but then they're also providing the necessary feelings really sometimes images but mostly feelings to stitch up these cuts to dress these wounds um so that you can grow larger than it your perspective has shifted enough that you're no longer the small little me with all of these wounds you're like oh i'm 
something containing these, but look, my, my boundaries are now larger. I can contain them instead of be victimized by them somehow. Well, what comes to mind is this really cool concept you were talking about in your video, which is psychoanalysis as an, a, long, a prolonged acid trip. And, and I want to tend to that because you're, for, for somebody who doesn't know, what is psychoanalysis and why in the world is it like an acid trip? <laughs> Good question. Um, psychoanalysis is a process of making the unconscious conscious. The unconscious being um, the everything that you don't know about yourself. And ultimately after you've gone through enough of your own personal bullshit, everything you don't know about the, the world at large. Um, so the process of making the unconscious conscious is um, a process of we, we employ, I don't know, well, we employ dreams a lot and symbols and synchronicities, which is a different conversation, to expose um, all of the ways that one hides, that I hide from myself, that you hide from yourself, whatever. Um, because it's, of course, the nature of the rational ego or the reasonable ego or consciousness to um, be in charge of its domain. I, I, the, the, the scene of um, in The Lion King where Simba's seeing the kingdom for the first time and, and Mufasa says, um, everything the light touches is yours. Like there's, there's something about rationality. That's that (laughs) everything the light touches. (laughs) I think about that like all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, And then of course Simba's like, but what's, what's over there in that shadow? (laughs) Take me out there. (laughs) That's where the elephants die. You know, don't go there. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't fuck with that. Um, But of course you have to fuck with that. And that's the whole story. And that's why the story is epic. Um, but so the psychoanalysis is the process of kind of seeing the elephant graveyard. So it's the process of mm-hmm. where, where are you forcibly not looking? Where are you forcibly denying aspects of yourself, mostly for self-protection, mostly because these parts that you're not looking at are elephant graveyards. They're full of bones and horror stories and it's, things about you and your story that you maybe don't want to like, like look at, you know, Oh, my mom was a perfect angel. Garen fucking to you. She wasn't, but nobody wants to look at that. Um, because that would be a betrayal of somebody that's very dear to you. Very important to you. Maybe. Um, so it's this process of, of taking into consideration who, who is the person that I have, that where are the places in me where the light has touched and, and how can I um, bring a bit more of the untouched, the dark places up? And they're not always ugly or painful. Um, they can also be really beautiful. I think creativity is, is something that lives in the unconscious um, for almost everybody. Uh, 
you know, joy, joy, I think also is down there, just this like genuine connectivity and joy. Um, and why I say it's like a really slow acid trip. So like my own experience in analysis has been, um, it, it feels like I'm, I'm digging into my heart and I find something and I kind of pick it up and out and I'm like, Oh, I guess this is what we're supposed to look at now. And we kind of look at it from all of the angles, like upside down and turn it inside out and, and really just sort of be with this content. And in so doing realize, Oh, wow. Like all of these symptoms from the last, whatever lifetimes have been because of this piece and this piece I now see. So now all of these symptoms have meaning. So there's this way in which you're kind of taking out pieces from your own depths, your own darkness and in examining them, it it constellates meaning throughout the whole web of your life. There's no longer these disparate pieces. Um, you start to feel, literally feel the threads of connectivity um, in your own story, which does wonders for your ability to be empathic and compassionate for other people, I'll say. Um, and why that feels like a really slow acid trip to me is... Um, <laughs> Because, because as, as you're in this process of like self-examination and making meaning of your own suffering, the world somehow pulses in on that experience. And you're suddenly given these experiences that like constellate more of this examination. It's like, you know, you can, you can have a wonderfully blissful romantic relationship for 20 years. And then you start examining your father complex and all of a sudden, like your relationship is like in just upheaval. And it's like, what happened? So there's this way in which as you're analyzing the unconscious, as you're making the unconscious conscious, um, the inside and outside orientation tend to start blurring. And this I think is why synchronicity is one of the cooler phenomena that happen both in psychedelic spaces and in analytic spaces. Um, like I, I had this experience at Burning Man a few years ago, speaking uh, of synchronicity. I was, I was just chatting with my, I was chatting with my friend. We were, we were um, on a low dose of something. I can't, maybe mushrooms. Uh, and um, I said very offhandedly, I was like in the middle of a sentence and then I was like, God damn, I could really use some chapstick. And I gestured like this and literally somebody biked by and put chapstick in my hand and kept going. <laughs> and it was one of those moments of just like, well, I do not understand what reality is at all. <laughs> like at all. <laughs> And that's been my experience of analysis too. And that's been my experience with analyzams is like the, the web, the intricate web of meaningful experiences gets um, amplified. It gets magnified and, and potentiated. Um, and it's scary when that happens slowly. It's also, I think, scary when it happens quickly, like in a psychedelic space, there's, there's, there's no breaks in that space, but in analysis and, and this was my experience working with Jed and in, in the Sidvaita tradition was like, I could put the brakes on, could be like, okay, water level's too high. Like this is, this is too deep. This is too far. 
we need to we need to pause here and and when you're working with dreams when you're working with um your subjective experience of the world you're only perceiving what you're able to perceive you're not going to have you're not going to remember 20 dreams a night which is an acid trip um you're not going to if if you don't get triggered by the barista who made your coffee then you're not going to process that in analysis. Like you're only going to bring to it what you have the subjective experience of, which means that the unconscious is being made conscious at the rate that you yourself can tolerate, which is one argument against the use of psychedelics, honestly, and why Jung was so against it is he, he, he thought that the, that the psyche delivers enough unconscious content every night to for a lifetime that there's no need for for more i disagree with that but well i i i'm sitting here on my desk i've got you know within four feet a four foot spread or carl Jung's books this is not a person who was limited in his capacity to articulate himself like <laughs> I, I noticed that with most folks that come into the office I, I, part of the tending early on is saying yes you can talk about that sexual fantasy you had about somebody jogging down the road Yes, you can talk about how pissed off you are that somebody cut you off on the way over here. Yes, you can talk about that crazy fucking fantasy you had about your mother-in-law. Like, it is fair game. So much of, I think, in my experience, where I am and who I tend to work with, is validating mm. the, the, the experiences, whether they are in the body, and of course we can locate them there, but but the images that, that come up, and then people feel horribly shamed by violent, aggressive, sexual, it's all the taboo stuff, all the images, and they think, well, God, oh my God, somebody's going to think I am fucking nuts if I talk about that. And here I am across them and going, God, I wish you would talk about that. You know, I wish we could set you more free from having to limit yourself so often. It's the, it's the freedom. And like, I think people, I, people, there's a, there's a maybe mis, misunderstanding that, oh, if I express my anger or if I, if I admit to my guilt or if I admit to my shame, something horrible will happen to me because then I'll have to actually feel my anger. I'll have to actually feel my sadness and that'll be too unbearable. And I can no. So I'm, I'm just no. And then of course these people just they're calcified. There's, there's no access to spontane spontaneity. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's really this, this freedom, not so that you can talk about your sexual fantasies with everybody over dinner or so that you necessarily follow these perverted impulses. Right. It's, it's not so that you have freedom of action, but the freedom of mind when you're expending all of this energy to keep the elephant graveyard lo under lock and key inside yourself, that is a lot of energy that could be used to love your partner better, to play with your children, to climb trees, to paint pictures. Like, it's just a really big waste of energy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, repression. Yeah. I don't think people are as conscious of how much, not only culture, but how much we actually repress in our daily lives. And I need to say this, like, uh, I, there's nobody who's immune to this. 
So studying this and stuff. The unconscious wouldn't exist without repression. Right. So it is a thing because we repress stuff. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've read Jung's journals, and for anybody that doesn't know, they're, they're public domain. So this is a figure who is openly exploring, you know, grotesque imagery, uh, like pithy stuff, like a desire to be liked, uh, fantasies about, you know, am I an artist? Am I a physician? Am I a scientist? You know, very, very human conflicts. But but he had a profound ability to put image into word and communicate it and dialogue with it and paint it and, you know, bring it into the outer world. So I, I, I think in large part, so much of any analytic work is about creating a trusting relationship so that somebody can even begin to have access to talk about confusing sexuality. Like men who have homoerotic feelings and they feel so shamed by it that they never say it to anybody and they can't hear somebody say, hey man, totally natural. Totally natural. Like, because we don't talk about that. We We don't talk about how... Um, those kinds of um, movements of our mind are, are are consistently lapping at the surface of our consciousness. I I really liked your framework of analysis as a as an extended <laughs> acid trip because it is and, and it totally is and of course like that that came to me a, a year and a half into my own analysis and I was like why do I feel like I'm tripping all of the time what is going on. <laughs> Oh, I am. Yeah. Right. Like that I'm I'm diving into my unconscious with a lot of intention and a lot of dedication, just like I would an LSD trip. Right. That's why, because it's the same goddamn place. Um and we got we got there because you were saying something about Jung being critical of but he did write about mescaline. I mean he he talked about it. Although I do know that he was, he he had he had said something to Bill, uh, you know, who Bill Miller, Bill Wilson, um, Wilson. from AA, who is uh, nobody really knows that he was engaged in an LSD assisted therapy, and mm-hmm. Jung kind of rebuked him for for that. Do you know this narrative? I do, and and Jung's letter to Bill Wilson is to this day one of my favorite. Um, pieces of Jung's writing he just you know I think as as somebody who with a long history of alcoholics in my family that that was an incredibly meaningful thing to Mm -hmm. read the way that he relates alcoholism to spiritual pursuit and spiritual longing something just like clicked in I was like ah right this is a lineage of of witches that forgot their power and looked for it in the bottle like that's that's why Uh, okay thank you like it just Again, like the image gives the whole thing meaning and something settles. So, and what we're saying there, Jung Jung does these things that he'll, in his writing, he'll say things like this really powerful commentary and synthesis of information. And he'll say, well, this is obviously such and such. And it's like, come on, man. Like, it's not obvious to everybody. You know, like, (laughs) that's your, that's your world. So I... I get it. There are some people who do need a lightning bolt, you know, mm-hmm. for those that 
seek it out. And, and that's, I think, why it's so valuable to talk about set and setting. You really want to be mindful of where you are and what you're opening yourself to. And I really feel, um, you know, like psychedelics are becoming a cultural phenomenon again for a good reason. Like, I, I do believe in the synergy of, you know, if we're going to talk set and setting, like we've got a cultural set and setting right now that is in deep need of this. And something has arisen from the depths to meet this need in the same way that a dream image would. It mm -hmm. took 40 years, but it's, it's here. It has arisen from the depths. Um, so like, I, I believe in that synergy. I know that synergy. There's nothing wrong with them being here now. Um, and I think that part of the, the, like to speak of repression, to speak of freedom, um, to speak of ecstasy, of joy, of, of true emotive experience. These are all aspects of one's irrational nature. Love is irrational. Beauty is irrational. Celebration is irrational. Ritual. Like, these aren't things that, that come from the ordered side of us. They come from the chaotic side of us. They emerge. Um, and psychedelics, when we're, we're, we've become so entrenched um, in our empiricism, we've actually forgotten how to, how to just be in these places without the aid of heavy hitting substances. I, I don't think that most people even know what these realms are until they've tried psychedelics. Not for lack of trying, not for lack of desire, not even for pathological reasons. Like we just, it's so enculturated in us to do, work, perform, build our egos, study with numbers and data, be empirical, look for proof, cite sources, use evidence. Like this is so enculturated that we've just forgotten how to do something else. Not that any of that is wrong. It's just not the whole thing. <laughs> and psychedelics without any effort at all, you can remember everything that is not that. You can remember the improbability of existence and the the insane heart opening that is beauty and how profoundly connected you are and how meaningful your life is because you're going to die that is the only reason it matters that's really heavy and really important and psychedelics give you that relatively i won't say seamlessly because my entire story has been anything but seamless, but they, they do give it to you. I'll just say that. You get that. And it's so funny, like, and what comes to mind is a rational, empirical, quantitative reason for why it happens, you know? I immediately <laughs> was thinking about Michael Pollan's book and, and all these images he's talking about, you know, when we look at our neurology what these substances do 
and how they essentially knock out the literal, executive, quantitative, you know, ration, rational part of our of our minds and locating that in our brain. And and so then we're able to have this religious experience. Right. And I mean, that's, you know, this, the, there's only a couple of studies on the similarities between dreams and dreams and psychedelics, but, but that's true of, of, of the dreaming brain too, is that our, our associative fluid metaphorical thinking setters, which tend to be in the medial temporal lobe for people that are curious, those parts are, are super online. And the, 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 it's like the cir- the circle parts of thinking are all there, the circle and spherical parts, but the 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 straight line parts, eh, <laughs> not as necessary. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said dreams because it is. Uh, I I think we can kind of tee that up by saying, when somebody comes to you to do this kind of work and they go, they say something like, "Why? Well, I, I don't know. I've had dreams. Why in the hell would I pay attention to dreams?" How do you tend to somebody who comes in with that kind of nothing but attitude? Internally, I, I, I mark that as, okay, one of the defenses is rationality. Like that's just a, a bookmark for me. Like, okay, we've got, we've got defensiveness around the irrational. Good to know. Um, and... I'll usually say something kind of um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll usually say something a little bit trickstery of like, well, you can tell them to me and I won't tell you what I think about them um, of, of like, I'll just, I'm just going to use them for me. And honestly, I do have, I do have a couple of, of clients that they don't, they don't, care about interpreting with me, but I still take their dreams and use them for my own awareness. Um, I, I never feel the need to convince somebody of something that they're not willing to play with themselves. So if, if that's your stance, great, I'll start there. Mm-hmm. Then maybe at some point, and I have had this happen a couple of times where, you know, a, several months or a year into working together. It's like, Hey, you know, how's your dream life? And they're like, yeah, actually I have been dreaming more. I'm like, that's interesting. Feel like sharing, you know, where something in the analytic container will Mm -hmm. inspire a little bit more unconscious activation. Well, will you speak to that? Why? Because it's not as if every psychological approach pays attention to dreams. Why, why this one? Um, because we are two in one, we are both solar and lunar. We are rational and irrational. We are ordered and chaotic. And if all that we're ever dealing with in therapy is what is already known, and what you have as my client ordered for me, made lists and today we're going to be talking about this and you've already shown your own light of consciousness onto it. Well, then all that we're doing is moving pieces around the board 
that you've already been working with. You've already, you've already dealt with, like you, you've seen these pieces and we can rearrange them however you want. You can change your thinking with conscious effort and cognitive behavioral therapy any way that you want, but you're just arranging the same pieces on the board in a new way. You're not adding or subtracting anything. Um, and dreams, I think that dreams are effective for a bunch of reasons. And I know that we don't know nearly all of them. Um, and that's, I think the, the biggest part about dreams is that it's an opportunity both for me, for anybody working with dreams to just be so humble, just be in the mystery entirely of like, whoa, I don't know what we're going to get to at the end of this analysis, at the end of the interpretation of this. I don't know what's going to come out. I don't know um, what this means. And inevitably that, I mean, that, that level of humility, I just think is super important when we're dealing with how a person makes meaning out of their life, which is the most personal fucking thing that you could possibly fathom. Um, I have no idea what the meaning of somebody else's life is. Uh, and there's something in sitting with dreams. I think there's, yeah, like I said, there's several things that happen. One, people get a sense of, oh my God, there's this other part of my psyche that's actively trying to help me heal. That's actively trying to help me grow. So there's an allyship that happens internally for this person of like, wow, without my asking for it, without my being in charge, without my controlling anything, all of this content has arisen inside of me for the sole purpose of helping me on my journey. So that allyship that happens is phenomenal. It's like, it's so beautiful when, when there's that like, yeah, that moment of reconciliation with yourself of like, oh my God, I've been here all along on this journey all along. And there's something in me that is pulling me and, and supporting me forward. Um, and dreams do that, especially when the ego is traumatized, especially when waking life has been horrendous. It's really hard to connect with the part of you that wants healing, that is already healing, that is already on a journey, that is invested in you. That's a really hard thing for a lot of people to tap into, but it's there in your dreams always. Um, and the other thing that happens, I think, with dreams is not with dreams, but with embracing the other, the inner other is a sense of wholeness inherently that like, as long as I have been performing a version of myself that is palatable, um, I've been cutting off. I've been cutting myself off from my wholeness because in order to be one thing, I have to not be all of these other things. Um, and the dreams without, again, without much effort, I think remind people that, um, or you have the experiential learning of, wow, I contain multitudes. I like I it's this just experience of 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 phenomenal like fathomlessness of like whoa I'm I'm all of that these things 
I do, there is this part of me that's always antagonizing. There is this part of me that's kidnapping. There is this part of me that's thieving. Like, and the more that we can kind of settle into, yeah, containing multitudes into being that, it's like, ah, okay, cool. Without any effort, there's wholeness. Great. And it seems like uh, when you talk about having an inner healer that, that stirs something up in you, that I bet yeah. was pretty reassuring for you throughout your life. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And the, I mean, it's been, I've made some pretty big decisions in my life because of dreams. I've, I've, I've like fully surrendered to, okay, you have the reins. Like I, whither thou goest, I go. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> And that's totally a, a mad, irrational choice. Uh, it's bonkers. It got me here. It got me to what I'm doing, which is more meaningful than I could ever have figured out with my conscious mind. I never would have gotten myself here alone. Not in a million years. I would have been stuck in some twisted dissociated fantasy working nightlife in New York city, complaining about shit and like doing cocaine on the weekends. Like <laughs> I would have stayed. I would have just stayed stuck if I had been in charge. The second that I stopped being in charge, magic happened. Like my life unfolded, actual meaning occurred. That wasn't me. Like this wasn't a conscious choice at all. So, yeah. And the dream, I mean, there have been dreams where I've, I've sat with them for weeks, just being like, like just bowled over in gratitude because they've been so beautiful and so potent and humbling because of that beauty. It's an awe inspiring experience to contend with the numinous in a dream. Um, makes you feel incredibly small and insignificant, but like also so, yeah, held. Just big mama like holding you. <laughs> Huge universal hug. Are you, uh, would you share one? Uh, sure. Yeah, this one, this one I think is, yeah. I had this dream last summer. So for those that don't know, the process of becoming a Jungian analyst is uh, harrowing. <laughs> and be not only because of the personal analysis that you have to go through, but, but um, at least everybody that I've talked to, and certainly everybody that's in my program at ISAP, like it, the, it's chaotic on purpose. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a rational process. They're, they're putting you through the meat grinder. They're putting you through the tumble dryer on purpose because they want all of your complexes, all of your triggers and weird shit to come to the surface so that your analysis is deep. And it's not just like, and I was coming into Jungian training as a, as a academic with my stripes. And I was a good academic. I was a good girl. I was a good student. I knew how to read a book and write an essay. And I got here and every, every part of my academic identity was just like, we don't give a fuck. Like, oh, oh, you think that that's what we want? 
no, 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 no. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't have anything else. Mm-hmm. I have nothing else. This is everything that I've ever been. What could you possibly want from me that isn't this? And they were like, you got to figure it out. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> so that's like step one of a non-academic academic training is the entire thing that you've built your entire identity or like personality around just goes out the fucking window, um, which was deeply confronting. And then, and then two years into the training, you have this series of exams after which time you are, um, you're graduated to the next level, which is working with, with patients under supervision. And here I was with all of my academic ego. Oh my God, exams. I finally get to do the thing that I was, I was born to do. I know how to do this. Oh, cool. Okay. I can ride this bike. Like, yeah, great. So like exam study was, I was just like, I was right back in all of my identity shit and, and I was doing good with this study. Um, and I aced my exams and I did all of them in the shortest amount of time that you could do, which nobody does. They usually space them out over a year. And, you know, I just like <laughs> fucking Ivy League education. Here I go. Um, and they didn't graduate me. They didn't. Oh, shit. Me. <laughs> oh. So I'm annihilated. I'm just like laid bare. Like I gave it. I gave it all of my egoic libido and it wasn't enough. Wow. Fuck. Completely humbling, completely destroyed me. I finally got the message. Um, and of course was like, okay, I have to give up. Like they don't want me. I'm, I'm bruised. My pride is so wounded. I, the only way to save face is to give up. I have to give up. Um, and I had this dream. <laughs> the dream was what a setup. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. <laughs> no doubt. No, it is. That's right. Um, and like this, this, it's a good example of, of making a decision based on a dream. Cause uh, like I said, the decision was to, to quit, to leave. Yeah. Um, like that was already, that was already fully in my consciousness. Uh, the dream was that, <laughs> I met up with, and this is hilarious. He's an Instagram. Um, he's a, a, a self-help author. He's a therapist called the angry therapist. He was, he was the animus in my dream, <laughs> which is great. Um, met with him at the edge of this beach. And it was very clearly like a ceremonial situation. And he was initiating me. He was my initiator. And he picked me up like, fireman style or wedding through the threshold style, mm-hmm. whichever, and walked me through this like brushy, underbrushy kind of reeds and like beach vegetation. Um, and we, we emerge onto the actual beach and there's the actual ocean. And then he puts me down and I'm standing in front of, we're standing face to face. We're both barefoot for some reason that was important. And he hands me a very, very, very large book, very, very old, very, very large book and he says, these are all of the dreams that have ever been dreamt. Like now you are ready for them. And I was like, 
like holding this tome and the paper is all dry and, and brown and stained and and it smells amazing. <laughs> like, and I'm holding it just like, uh, I, uh, how am I ready for this? And he goes, this is your initiation. Like you, you be with these dreams cover to cover pay particularly, and this was, this was a while ago. He goes, pay particular attention to the dreams, um, of 2021. This, yeah, it wasn't 2021. He goes, read into the future dreams, pay particular attention to the dreams of 2021. And I was like, why should I pay attention to the dreams of 2021? And he goes, because those are the dreams that you started dreaming seven years ago in 2014 that will come to fruition in 2021. And I woke up from that dream and was like, fuck, I have to stay the course. Mm -hmm. I can't give up. Like there's, there's something in 2021 of my dreams, be those my dreams of my life or my actual nighttime dreams. I have no idea, but it was just like, okay, nope, can't, can't stop. Like something's coming to fruition. I'm being initiated into something. Stay. So I stayed. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> It's a taking seriously what happens yeah. inside. Yeah. We are multitudes. Peter Kingsley writes about this so beautifully, I think. Yeah, he does. So, so beautifully. And I'm I'm really grateful to him for putting language to it because I think I think all of my own process of attending my dreams has been not it's been kind of subconscious. I never made the decision to attend my dreams. It just it just sort of was like, okay, this is what we're doing now. This is, this is what's working. So we're just going to keep doing it. It wasn't like a super conscious choice. And then reading Kingsley, it was like, oh, I can actually make this a conscious choice. I can just state very consciously, very openly that I'm in partnership with my unconscious and I will listen when she beckons. Cool. That's that then. <laughs> what a dream. Yeah. Well, and that, there's something about the patterns that you're talking about and synchronicities and how often we need those kinds of synchronicities to begin to start to trust what's moving through us rather than looking at it with that attitude of like, whatever, it's just a dream or it's just a, it's just a coincidence. Right. You know, I, I was sitting with a patient yesterday who had a powerful synchronicity, a series of several, and in, interpreted it, had it. And was like, is this crazy that I want to make this decision? I was like, no, you know, like it's we need, sometimes we need somebody else that says no. That remember these things are powerful and uh, they matter, and we can take them seriously. Yeah. Well, and this is Jung's thing of if you do not make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life, and you will call it fate. I think that that's often kind of put in this weird mystical camp, yeah. but but it's actually not. It's actually this. It's like. If you're not attending to the, the callings and the tugs and the promptings of this inner marriage, if you're not listening to your other half, she's going to get really loud and angry and nitpicky <laughs> and you're going to be in a brutal marriage. <laughs> yeah. And it's going, to, it's going to look like accidents in your life or... Um, horrible things and that, that feel faded, but really like the, the indications. And I think illness is, is one great example of this. 
and a lot of people I think do kind of confront their unconscious when they get diagnosed with something um, heavy and scary. It's like, oh, whoa, like there could, there is always this sort of feedback loop that is leading you to your own wholeness, your own meaning. Um, that's just baked right in. And when we're not in conscious dialogue with it, it needs to get louder so that we hear it. And that loudness often looks like calamity. Which is why I don't think that calamity is actually as bad as it is. It's like, okay, now, now I'm paying attention. Thank you. Sorry, I, I wasn't before. I'm here now. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a good interpretation. So before we start to close this out, I, I want to connect on rational and irrational. And because and, it, it is really, the way you were talking about it in the video, it's really important to position this reminder for people that we have lost contact with a root system for a number of reasons and miss misdefinitions, misunderstandings of who we are and what we are in the world. And I think you did a good job tending to it. So I'd love to, to hear that from you as we finish. Cool. Thanks. Um, I mean, I'll, st I'll start by saying that like I, in recent readings, and I just want to kind of put this in because it's new to me. Um, recent readings, I've been exploring William James a bit more and also kind of going back over where Jung writes about uh, rationality. And there's a distinction between reason and rationality. And I think that that's an important distinction that um, Schelling in particular, who's a philosopher that Jung, um, a German philosopher that Jung cites a lot, he, he distinguishes that, that rationality needs to be contra or compensated for with madness. But we've, we've kind of done this thing where we think that it's rationality, i.e. intellect, observation, understanding, known versus reason, empirical, data-driven, proof-based. So we've done this thing where we've privileged both of these forms of thinking and forgotten entirely the irrational, the mad, the ecstatic, um, the nonsensical, mm -hmm. the lunar consciousness, as I've been relating to it lately. Um, and I think that that's an important distinction. And I, I got messy in my thinking around this between that it's, oh, it's just rational and irrational. But I think it's actually, there is a necessity for rationality when we're dealing with the irrational. And it's the reasoning. It's this empirical evidence-based materialism that destroys that connection, the rational, irrational connection. So the rational, and the reason that I bring this up is actually because of the last conversation that we had, when I kind of like, I, I summarized it by being like, well, we need to use discernment. And, and you rightly were like, so you don't want people to use the rationality, but then you do. And I was kind of like, yeah, fuck me. <laughs> How do I get out of that? And and so I've been like, what what is it actually that's cool. necessary? And, and the rationality is so important. Discernment is so important, especially as we're starting to contend with irrational things like madness and symbolism. 
like like the experience I was talking about in my own psychosis where everything had meaning, it's that's an overwhelming experience when you have no no discerning faculty. When when like if you're just in the apophenic meaning rich sync everything's a synchronicity and there's no discernment mm -hmm. you're completely liable to be like totally overtaken and i think that this is a big shadow of psychedelic culture by people that make meaning for you if somebody offers you a discerning voice or a way to make meaning out of your experience because you do not possess the ability to discern and make meaning yourself you're going to get brainwashed um, so rationality is super important reason empiricism and James William James, um, I think distinguishes between these. He's the first to kind of distinguish between these that there's, there's rational science, which is the science of observation. And then there's empirical science, which is the science of proof. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's this imperial empirical material science that has us so stuck in this lifeless soulless reality. Um, and now we're kind of being initiated culturally with psychedelics into spaces where that language, that empirical language gets all, but it just gets fuzzy. It just met. <laughs> you can't tell me what proof there is about this when I've had a direct experience of it. Right. No amount of science can take that experience away from me. Um, the downside of that, of course, is that now we're in this like privileging subjectivity to the extent that there's no intellectuality anymore. There's no critical thinking. It's just feelings, 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 and I'm offended and I have no Archimedean point within myself. It's just whatever my impulse is. So again, why we need rationality to stay put. Um, and this, uh, you get into the uh, trauma warnings and uh, or trigger warnings and, and uh, cancel culture. Yes. Yeah. And because we had this eruption right now of simultaneously it's it's kind of cancel it warn me if there's a trigger but also all these conspiracy theories that are radical images that are not new i mean not new and this is the thing that i'm that i'm saying like when you have not sussed out for yourself and learned how to wield the sword of your own discernment which is a head heart gut thing it's not just the head like it's, it does involve your emotional experience. It does involve your embodied experience. The best discernment always does. But if you have not done that and somebody sprinkles a little bit of like mad conspiracy theory into your sphere, whoop, all right, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. Like you have no center. So you're just taken by this stuff, um, by these ideas, because they're, they, they are offering you some order in the chaos. A conspiracy theory does offer order in an otherwise unknown field. Um, or when, yeah. when you can't make sense of what's going on and somebody offers you something that does make sense of it, you want it. You crave right. it. And the crazy thing about our mind is that somebody who's got the hook does think they have a center. Right. And right. that's... 
that yeah so it's so illusory at, at, it's at completely times. illusory but i'm glad you're well, then, yeah i'm glad you're bringing those both together you know that's important to remember that you know the integration of both sides of this and and this maybe is is this maybe is a weird tie-in but to your question about the the misunderstanding of logic and rationality and again peter kingsley i have him to thank for this that like um what was meant to be rationality was always only ever meant to be a way to use the intellect to be with the mystery, to be with the paradox of existence. And, and Kingsley writes about Parmenides, who was Plato's teacher, um, who taught Plato logic. And Parmenides had this initiatory experience, probably with ergotized wine, um, where he met with Persephone in the darkness and he was gifted logic as a way to use the rational mind, which we cannot be rid of. There's no ridding ourselves of this, which is why philosophy, at least as Parmenides was teaching it and Paracelsus and or, um, Heraclitus and these, these old dudes, like pre-Socratic dudes, I mean, um, you, you can't be rid of this faculty, but you can occupy it skillfully. And if you're occupying it in a humbling task, like contending with the mystery, then it doesn't rule, it doesn't steal the show. But then Plato came in and was like, no, we can actually use this to solve the mystery. Like, no, 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 the paradox doesn't need to exist. Look, if you just change the wording a little bit, if you just ask the question like this instead, um, then look, oh, now it's got an answer. Cool, problem solved. I can go on thinking about different things now. So he did exactly the thing that Parmenides was, was hoping for, for us not to do as a species, which is use the rational mind to think our way out of um, being in communion with something mysterious, which again is why dreams become so interesting is because they they have this mysterious originator because the originator is nature itself. And you cannot never fathom the plan. You know, I, I joke a lot with, with my clients that it's above my pay grade. I don't know. Don't know what the plan is. Um, but the dreams seem to somehow step-by-step step, maybe. Um, and that, that was, that was meant, that was what was meant to be made of the rational mind was how do I, when given this numinous mystery, how do I employ my rational mind to maneuver skillfully through this so that I cause no harm and so that I don't fracture my own psyche, inner psyche. But when we privilege the rational mind, like, or when we give logic over to empiricism, to this world of reason and proof and seeking evidence, evidence outside of our subjective experience, then... Uh, like, we it's taking the sword of rationality and using it to destroy the mystery 
instead of letting both exist. And we need to let both exist. Yeah, nobody needs to ask me what I get out of the relationship with my children or my wife. Right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just in it. And there's no proof. There's no... Yeah. Like, you can measure it, I guess. You can. Yeah, sure. But like your your love is not going to be measurable compared to anybody else's. Right. And their love for you, the meaning that you all have in each other as a family unit is there's sure we can devise a self-report measurement and say, okay, yeah, seven out of 10 here and eight out of 10 here, but so the fuck what? Like big deal. Yeah. That does nothing for your actual relating to one another at all and 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 the danger of course with this in psychology is that people are looking to the measures how they test on things how they score on things what their diagnosis is classified yeah exactly what the diagnosis is and they're using that as the authority and again back to this this there's no inner discernment there's no checking does that ring true for me does that does that meet my mind standards? Does it meet my heart standards? Is my gut on board with this? There's just you're just outsourcing the authority to what is reasonable and quantifiable and empirical, which is it's like the largest divorce that you could possibly do, and it's mm-hmm. so heartbreaking. It just it's so heartbreaking. Well, I think it's a good time for us to close out. Thank you. Is there anything else you have kind of hanging that you need to include in our little soup? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think. Thank you so much for this time, Mackenzie. Thank you. It's no. always a pleasure. Yeah. yeah okay, I'll include all the stuff in the uh, in the resources uh, where you can find um, your information, the inked shrink. Thank you. <laughs>